Welcome to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, the first podcast to focus on the political side of pharmacy. Here's your host, Eric Geyer. Welcome, Political Pharmacist Podcast listeners. I'm your host, Eric Geyer, and with me today I have Sean Higgins. Uh, Sean is an adult substance use disorder counselor, a licensed alcohol and drug counselor for Nystrom Associates, and also graduated pharmacy school from South Dakota State. So go Jackrabbits. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast, uh, Sean. Thanks, Eric. It's nice to be here tonight. Hey, the pleasure is mine. Um, I've known you for a while, and we're going to talk about a little sensitive uh, subject here that you know a lot about, obviously, with your your work and some of uh, your personal experiences. So we're going to talk about something that's way too common these days, especially with COVID and even among healthcare workers, and that's addiction. Can you share with the listeners kind of what you would like to about your journey uh, with and through this? Oh, absolutely. Um, uh, well, kind of starting off with my journey, and, and you mentioned COVID, and I think we're seeing a lot more of uh, people suffering from being isolated. And one thing I even noticed the other day, um, or not so much the other day, but throughout this COVID uh, crisis, is when we were wearing masks every day, when you would go to the grocery store, everything seemed so doom and gloom. And I think that's because, you know, when you walk by people and you acknowledge them, you kind of smile and shake your head, but we couldn't see the smiles. You know, yeah. and and I just that came to me one day and I'm like, no, no wonder everyone's in such, such a bad mood. <laughs> yeah. You know, so but yeah, my story uh, started oh probably back around uh, 2000 would be about the time when I started really um, uh, recognizing that I had a problem with alcohol and substances. You know, uh, if I if I really back went back and examined my history, it probably started a long a long time before that, like when I was in college. <laughs> you <laughs> yeah. Know? Um, but that's when I first uh, when I noticed it, and it. You know, like so many other stories that you hear of people that that have opiate use disorder is, uh, you know, it started very innocently with a prescribed medication, you know, and uh, and that that was what it was. But I kind of knew when I first took that that there was going to be a problem coming down the road. You know, you just have that feeling sometimes. And so I was scared of this stuff for the longest time. And uh you know, and then I started getting to the point where I was having a lot of this anxiety, depression, uh, many, many mental health issues, super stressed out at work, high volume retail pharmacy environment and those kind of things. And the only way that I knew at the time to settle myself down was to take something. And that something for me was was opiates, Vicodin and Lortab in particular. Um, and so that, that was my way of kind of unplugging from the stress and relaxing. And it started very, very slow, you know, like one here and there, you know, every couple of months. Well, just like every other addiction, it starts to ramp up and go. And next thing you know, you're, you're using several times a day. You tell yourself you're not going to use before work and then you're going into work high and, and all of these other things. And, uh, you know, I think one of the reasons I kind of got out of alcohol and got into opiates is because it was easier to hide at work. You know, you didn't have you didn't have the giveaway smell. You didn't have the giveaway slurring and and all of that kind of stuff. So um, 
but as I came around to the end of uh, to the end of that particular use episode, uh, one of the things that I had always heard about uh, was in Minnesota we have a program called the Health Professional Services Program or HPSP, and that is run by all the state boards. It's funded by uh, the money that comes out of the license fees that we pay for. A certain amount of that goes to fund this HPSP program. And I didn't know if I believed in it or not. You know, we discussed that a little bit while we were getting started. Uh, I'm, they, they told me that, hey, if I, if I go and I, and I fess up, tell them what's going on, that I can enter this program, they'll help me get treatment, they'll set me up for success in, in, uh, with my substance use disorder, and the Board of Pharmacy won't take action against my license as long as I'm compliant with the program. And, you know, I really didn't believe it. I just, I, I, I didn't believe it, but I got to a point where I had no choice. You know, I had to, I had to put a stop to what was going on. Uh, I had two little girls to raise, you know, and had gotten married in the previous two years and, and all those things. So something had to change. And I did, I made that call very hesitantly. I made that call. And they answered the phone. They asked me a series of questions to make sure that I qualified for the program. One of them is I couldn't, uh, one of the stipulations is you can't go into the program if you've diverted substances for somebody else's use. So, for instance, if I had been diverting substances and selling them, then I would not have qualified for the program. But since it was personal use, you still qualify. And, you know, and there's some stigma that comes with that, too. As a pharmacist, you know, we're supposed to be helping other people, you know, and managing their medications. And here I was in a situation where I couldn't even manage my own. Yeah. And I think that's I think that's where a lot of people that get especially healthcare professionals get to the, that point when they're suffering from addiction disorders is that they just uh, they don't know how to get help because they're afraid of the stigma that goes along with it. Yeah, and so, you know, one thing that people are always going to like look back and ask with this is why. Like, was it just because of, you know the anxiety was a little bit easier? Or did you never see it coming? Because a lot of people look at you know pharmacists and they think, hey, you make six figures. It's a quote unquote cushy job. We all know how retail's been <laughs> with stress. Yeah. Don't want to say that anymore. But uh, you know, like if you had to look back, like what was like the one thing that you could just say was like the why for you maybe that maybe pushed you over the edge when you look back at it um well honestly for me uh, i really have to tie it back to depression at the time did i know i had depression maybe <laughs> you know i knew things i knew i wasn't that happy you know and um but i also didn't want to go to a doctor and get an antidepressant because then again at that time you know, mental health was much more stigmatized than it is now. And so going to a doctor and asking for that kind of help, which would have been the appropriate thing to do, I, I didn't do that. So, uh, and at the time I really didn't, I didn't have much skills as far as being able to manage my own mental health problems. You know, I didn't, I didn't know how to cope with depression. I didn't know how to cope with stress and all of those things. So my coping mechanism turned into chemicals. But, you know, I go back to that first prescription and, uh, you know, I'd taken that, uh, taken that Vicodin 
right after I had an outpatient surgical procedure. And I knew the first time I took that, I just, I had that feeling there. There's, there's a certain euphoric feeling that comes when it, when you're an addict or alcoholic, there's a certain, it's a different euphoria, I think, than other people experience. And I knew that that was a feeling that someday I was going to want again. Mm. And that's, that's what created that fear of not touching the stuff forever. Yeah. But then I always, I still had that thing in the back of my head. Well, I know how to make myself feel good really easy. You know, and then that's, uh, and then when I got to the point that I couldn't cope anymore, that's what I started doing. You know, it's, it's funny you mentioned that we, as again, we were kind of pre-gaming talking up to this a little bit. I had mentioned that I have some addiction that runs in my family and a similar moment for me was I had eye surgery, um, like PRK just to fix my vision. Right. And they gave yep. me gabapentin and they told me, just take it preventively before you go to bed. And I took one of those suckers and I felt like I was back in college drinking again. I'm like, I see why people abuse this one now, which is not even opiates. And I'm like, I am not touching this <laughs> stuff. Like I'm throwing it out. Like I'm done with it. Cause I could yeah. definitely see with the way it made, made me feel after one. I'm like, Nope, not going to go down this road. And yeah, it, it could have been a different story. You know, maybe if I decided to take another one, but I was just like, Nope, I know exactly what you mean when you said that. And you know, very yeah, different well, paths, but still. And, and kind of the dangerous thing, I think, at least for me, the dangerous thing was I thought, well, I'm a pharmacist. I know enough about this stuff not to get addicted. I know when to stop. You know, but those of us with addiction and substance use disorders, that's that's the trait of the disorder is that we have no control. Once we start using the stuff, we don't know when it's going to stop. Yeah. You know, and it's usually not going to stop until somebody intervenes. Because the the only thing that motivates somebody to make that drastic of a life change to come out of addiction or any other um, any other behavioral type thing, the only thing that's going to get you out of that is pain. Pain is a great motivator, you know. So once things get painful enough, we'll get around to changing. Yeah. But you know that's why you hear people, oh well, they haven't hit their bottom yet. They haven't hit their bottom. It's just that they have not experienced enough emotional and or physical pain to motivate them to get out of the of the cycle that they're in. And to that point, like the bottom can be very deep. Like the bottom can be death. Like that that's what we're yes. talking about here. Like you you don't really want to hit bottom <laughs> per se. Yes. Well, and uh, you know, now that I, after I went to grad school and got my master's degree and then went back and, and have started practicing as a alcohol and drug counselor, I see a lot more of that side of addiction now than I did before. Um, you know, I wasn't a person that went out and used and went out and tried to find drugs on the street and things like that. And it's not that I'm any different than any of the other addicts and alcoholics out there. It's just that, you know, I had access yeah. <laughs> and they and they don't, you know, otherwise I probably would have been out on the street doing all those same things. So it's important for me to remember that I'm no different in in that respect. But um, so I don't know, like all the people around the area um, other than through my current work. Now I've started to learn who some of them are, but the, the dealers and things like that. Um, but once I got into this role. Uh, I started seeing more of who those people were and um, and some of the other dysfunction in addition to the uh, in addition to the substance use. There was a lot of other 
major underlying healthcare issues. The, the one thing that surprised me the most uh, coming into this field and counseling people is the level of uh, the level of people that have suffered severe trauma. You yeah. know, whether it's uh, whether it's being beaten up by their parents, whether it's been sexual assault, which is very common, um, much more common than I would have ever thought. Um, and, but there's so much that's tied to trauma and abandonment and things like that. And I look at my life. My life wasn't that difficult, but I still I still became an addict. But I see these. I see these people and they really struggle and, and it hurts because sometimes you see them walk out of the treatment program, sometimes even successfully graduating, and then you find out a month or two later that they died overdose. Yeah. You know, and so that's, I see a lot more of that side of it now than I ever did before. And that's where it really kind of gets to you. Yeah. And I mean, you're human. That, sh- that probably will and should get to you. Like, right. Like you don't yeah. want to see that, especially somebody you helped and really used exactly your pharmacist tools, your counselor tools, your personal tools to try and make their life better. And you really have so much invested in them. And you might, some people might look at it like a job, but you've got to be a pretty big sycophant not to, to just look at it as that's your job. I didn't complete it and not the human life part. So uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. If, if you're not getting invested in, in the lives of clients in the counseling world, you're doing the wrong job. Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah, I have no other better way of saying that. So yeah. <laughs> um, you know, one thing that I, with COVID, obviously we've seen the numbers on addiction and burnout just skyrocket. And you talked about working in an environment that was probably burning you out for lack of a better term, since that's kind of the buzzword yes. we're using with that. Um, yeah. So with COVID, we've seen a lot, obviously a lot of healthcare workers, especially pharmacists get burnout and leave their profession even. And things like this really can lead to substance abuse because now you might be leaving what you identified as you have anxiety, there's depression, there's a lot of questions in your life and things like that. So instead of ta- focusing this on a lot of the negative and like just kind of digging up old stuff, what wisdom or advice would you give people who might see these issues forming within themselves or even within others, like within their profession that they work with, what have you? Um, well, there's, uh, there's a couple things and I, you know, I wish if, uh, if I had a time machine, I would go back and do all this stuff myself and hopefully save myself the, these problems with addiction and things like that. Uh, but I think the, the key thing is, is when we notice that we're getting burned out and I see it, you know, uh, that, uh, COVID-19 pharmacist group on Facebook, I read that a lot. Yeah. And uh, even though I'm not practicing pharmacy anymore, I still empathize with the struggle of trying to be a pharmacist. And when I was a pharmacist, we didn't have all the metrics and all those <laughs> things. So I can't I couldn't even do pharmacy now. Yeah. I just I couldn't because that's just that's way too over the top for me. But uh, when you start noticing that those uh, uh, those situations and it's not always burnout sometimes it's compassion fatigue because we're yes uh we're working with our clients and we see them struggling trying to get through it and when we're empathizing with them we kind of, we sometimes take a little bit too much ownership of what's going on with them uh so it's learning how to draw that line you know you can't totally disconnect like we were saying before you can't totally disconnect you're still a human being but um knowing when i can help this person and where the line is where i can no longer help i just have to hope that they are are following my advice and taking their medications the way they're supposed to 
Yeah. You know, that's my, my responsibility. Although I, I think about them when they go home, my responsibility for what actions they take stops yeah. at the, at them, you know? And so that's, uh, that's the compassion fatigue. There's also a new, well, I don't know if it's a new word, but the buzzword that's been going around lately in our profession anyway is brownout. You know, and I, when they first started talking about it, I'm like, what is that? Some sort of lesser blackout? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, and then they explained it. But brownout is uh, is uh, uh, notched down from burnout. It's when you start noticing that, uh, you know, you're getting up and you're heading to work and you just can't stand the fact you, you can't fathom the fact that I got to go in there for another eight hours and I'm just going to hate it. And. Yeah, and when you start having feelings like that, well, that's uh, that's anxiety, that's depression, that's stress creeping up. So the biggest thing we have to start doing is notice, noticing those things first and then doing uh, the other buzzword, self-care. You know, self-care. When I've got my day off, uh, I don't know about you, but I used to wander into the store on my day off and then i'd spend an hour talking to the staff at the store you know and that is that's a horrible sense of self-care that's that, what i needed to do was stay away from that place for a day yeah. <laughs> you know so there there's some of those kind of things and um you know and i know i remember very vividly uh the nights coming home where i thought oh man what if i made a mistake on that prescription there's that one prescription that i'm not sure i got right and and that kind of stuff would keep me up at night and so um taking care of myself practicing more mindfulness talk about buzzwords but practicing more <laughs> mindfulness and things like that and stress reduction techniques and I think the more we do that, those are the coping skills that I didn't have. I just didn't know how to do them. Um, the lucky thing that pharmacists and healthcare professionals and anybody with addiction or mental health uh, issues now, if you want to learn how to meditate, you Google meditation and there's all kinds of videos to show you how to do it. When they first recommended that I should meditate when I was in treatment, I'm like, Oh, well, I don't want to sit there with my legs crossed and pinching my fingers and, you know, om, om, <laughs> om, you know, but that's not what it's about. There's so many different forms of meditation and, you know, you can turn a leisurely stroll into a meditation simply by paying attention to what's going on around you. The, you know, what do the birds sound like? What kind of smells am I picking up? What colors am I seeing? Uh, what's that, what does it sound like when the sticks and leaves and stuff crunch under my feet? That is a great form of meditation, and you're connecting with the world around you. I think we get into that stress and depression when we're pulling away from the world. Yeah, and, that's a really good point because a lot of people know I'm kind of a big well, – I was more of a big runner. Uh, I'm actually wearing a marathon shirt now, as you can see. Uh, and and it's one of those things that with COVID and being distant and then the stress of work and obviously me being a new dad and everything have not been gotten out nearly as much. And it's one of those things that there's times I'm like, I just need to go run. And it's like going through a park and feeling yes. everything you just talked about. And I never really thought about that as meditation. For me, that was like, I'm somebody who can't sit still. Everyone knows that. So it's like, <laughs> I would have to go out and do something. Like I'm always doing something, right? Like we're recording this, you know, kind of later at night because I just don't sit still very well. And I never looked at that as meditation. But when I go out there and do that, when I'm done, it feels like as good or better than 
any drug I've ever had because I'm like, yeah. yes, I just got that weight off my shoulders. Yeah, and you get to disconnect from what's stressing you out and connect to something that makes you feel good. And and for some people, it may not be exercise. It may not be walking. It may just be when I'm at home with my family, I'm going to pay attention to my family instead of thinking about work. So when my mind wanders back to work, I have to consciously bring myself back into the room with my family and talk to them and interact with them and connect with them. There's a there's a video a TED talk. Um, it's about addiction, but they they talk about the I can't remember who it is right off the top of my head, but he talks about the opposite of addiction is connection. So if we wanna if you know addicts addicts and people with severe mental health, we tend to isolate. We pull inside of ourselves, and the rest of the world kind of doesn't exist. You know, um, but when we start connecting with people, and that's why groups like AA and NA and Crystal Meth Anonymous and all the other A's that are out there, you know, that's why those are so successful is because they promote connection and they promote connection with like-minded people that have suffered some of the same, some of the same consequences because of their drinking or their use. And uh, so that kind of gives that common bond, you know, and anyone who's listening, who's read the big book knows the story about the Titanic, you know, here's all these people that don't, that normally would not associate with one another out in public, but because they were on the Titanic, when it went down, you know, there's the reunions and all those things. So they come and, and they have, they have just this innate sense of connection from a common trauma. Yeah. You know, and and so that's that's why these things work and the connection uh, works. And most of the time when I have people that struggle after going through treatment or are struggling during treatment, it's because they're not getting involved in the community around them. And that doesn't necessarily have to be AA or NA meetings, but you have to make a connection somewhere, somewhere where you fit in, somewhere where you're comfortable. You know, and if that's your family, that's your family, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, so. and I'm kind of interested if, you know, when you say that, does that mean that from what you've seen, you get more introverts or more extroverts that are in addictive services? Or is it just kind of a 50-50, you know, like what's your semi, well, heck, your professional judgment when it comes to that? Um, you know, uh, some of the people come in and they act uh, – very much like extroverts, but when you start getting in there and you start talking to them about what was going on in their lives and what the addiction has done to them, it's uh, a lot of it centers around loneliness and introversion and uh, very empathic people. You know, they take on other people's problems (laughs) and things like that. So I would say most of them are introverts, but there are a few of them that are very well-trained introverts that look like extroverts. It's, it's funny you sense. say that. And <laughs> the reason I ask is because so many pharmacists tend to be introverts, right? And we tend to be empathic. Yes. So when you start putting that with the access and then the workload, all of a sudden, to me, it sounds like just a pretty good recipe for a time bomb. <laughs> Uh, well, yeah, it is. Um, but the other the other component to addiction that sometimes we forget about, and it's uh, it's not a hundred percent true, but there is a genetic 
connection to addiction runs in families and things like that. So uh, if you're looking at it, uh, when you have the intersection of somebody's genetic or physical makeup and where that um, where the uh, introducing the chemical into the body and it hits that sweet spot, you know, then that's where you activate the addiction. Once somebody has activated the addiction, they no longer have control of when it's going to stop. That's where we talk about it has to be this intervention or it has to be hitting this bottom or it has to be hitting this this spot in your life where it's so painful that the pain of going to treatment and admitting you have a problem is less than the pain of continuing to do what you're doing. You know, and so, uh, yeah, there's... it. So there's, say, all the pharmacists in the world are there. You know, we are no different from the general population. About 10% of us are going to be addicts. That's crazy. Yeah. That's crazy when you think about that because you think, like you said, you think you know it. You think you know how it works. You think you're the professional in the room. But that's still 10%. That's a high number. That doesn't mean 10% of the whole population is necessarily going to be, but you're at least predisposed to that. And as soon as you hit that and it gets rolling, like you said, it can go downhill quickly. Yeah. Well, and when you see the numbers of, uh, of pharmacists, you know, most of those programs like HPSP uh, put out a report to their boards at the end of every year. And you see the number of uh, pharmacists, nurses, uh, <laughs> licensed alcohol and drug counselors that, that came into this program, dentists, doctors, veterinarians. In Minnesota, it covers almost everybody that can be licensed under the Department of Health. Um, but you start looking at those numbers and they seem a little bit shocking, but it really does. It equates out to roughly 10%. Oh, wow. Okay. So it still does. So you have a hundred pharmacists in a room. There's probably 10 of them that have an alcohol or drug problem. Yeah. And that carries over for MDs, nurses all across. Yeah. Yeah. It's I mean, biologically, we're no different than anybody else. Our brains may be, uh, have a little bit more power than the average person, <laughs> but uh, sometimes that's sometimes that's the thing that is our curse. And that, that's where I was saying, you know, well, I know enough not to get addicted. I know enough when to, when I can stop and it won't be a problem. And so my, my brain and my education was very much uh, a hindrance to me in getting well. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. I didn't realize it was that, that high. That's crazy. Yeah. And the other thing we were talking about, Eric, when when we were kind of doing our pre-discussion is uh, you were talking about uh, how pharmacists can sometimes get wrapped up in their, their identity as being a pharmacist. Yeah. You know, uh, and that's one thing that I found to be true with myself. And one of the things that made it so hard to get help is to me, that piece of paper on the wall was everything. You know, I couldn't be me without that guilty piece of paper on the wall, <laughs> you know, because I couldn't make that kind of money that I was making. I couldn't, you know, I, I the very much of, and as much work and money that went into getting that education, it really, that piece of paper was very important to me. So it was hard to get help because I thought I was going to lose that piece of paper. Yeah. And you know what? I still have that piece of paper on my wall after everything I've gone through and going through treatment twice and going through grad school. I still have that piece of paper on the wall. I could go and practice tomorrow if I wanted to, but I can't stay well in that environment. 
Yeah. You know, That's like I said, when I hear you guys talk about metrics and all that stuff, you got to answer the phone within 15 seconds. <laughs> man, I would, I would have been out the door on day two. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's interesting too, because in my new role, like obviously I've got numbers and I don't want to say quotas, but like, uh, you know, goals to meet stuff like that. And I try yeah. not to project, like I try and always be like, Hey, here's a target. Like if you hit it, it's not the end of the world. Like where this is what we're aiming for, like because metric is a four-letter word in pharmacy these days, and I don't want you to have the anxiety I had when it came to like hitting a certain number that was, in all honesty, completely out of my damn control. But you know, that, that's, <laughs> exactly, that's a whole other story. Um, but yeah, thanks for sharing that, and yeah, um, and I think that's where we get into the stress because so much of what we're being measured on is out of our control, and we are used to being people that can figure out problems. And that can take control of situations and make them work out for the best. But in a situation like that, I'm completely at the mercy of how many times the phone rings, how many people walk in the door, you know. Um, and you know how when you get stuck on the phone with an insurance company, well, it brings everything to a halt. Yeah. And But the clock's still ticking on your metrics. Yeah. You know. And, and you just want to bang your head on the counter. <laughs> yeah. It's, a, it's just a recipe for a high-stress um, high stress environment. And it's, it's just, uh, it's unfortunate that, that, that is what the pharmacy world, at least in large chain pharmacies has come to. It's, uh, it's saddens me in a lot of ways. Yeah. And obviously that's why I do some of what I do is cause I would love to change that model. Cause I've been there. I know what it is. And I know the impact you can make, but I also know it's not sustainable just because of yeah. all this just garbage that comes through at the same time. So <laughs> exactly. Um, exactly. If people want to reach out to help find services for themselves or for somebody else, say it's like a close friend, somebody that they, you know, if they t- spoke to that they have trust with, what's a good way for them to do that? Um, well, if, uh, for instance, if you're, if you know that somebody's got a problem and you are looking for a treatment center for them. Uh, you can go to the SAMHSA website and go to what they call their treatment locator, and you can find uh, inpatient, outpatient clinics in your area. It gives you telephone numbers, addresses, all the everything you need to be able to contact a treatment center. Um, one of the best things you can do, I think, when you have, uh, if you have a coworker, don't be afraid to talk to them. If your radar is going off that there's something going on with them, even if you don't know exactly what it is, just to offer them an ear, you know. And the, and and sometimes they're going to take it, and sometimes they're gonna they're gonna blow it off. You know, at the time I would have blown it off and just said, "No, there's nothing wrong with me. I can handle it." Right. But. You know, I also know people who, once somebody asked them, they were more than willing to just fall in their arms and accept the help. You know, um, so don't be a don't be afraid to talk to them, and you don't have to accuse them of anything. You can just tell them, you know, I see you're under a lot of stress. I see you coming to work. If you have somebody that's in the pharmacy, whether it's a tech or whether it's another pharmacist that is falling asleep standing up. I can almost guarantee you they are an addict and they're using opiates, you know, because nobody falls asleep standing up. But I did. Yeah, especially in the high-stress pharmacy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, um, and I I had some people that came to me, you know, after I went to treatment, said, you know, I wish I would have said something because I knew something was going on. And, you know, and then that's where I had to turn around and say, yeah, but at that point in time, I wasn't ready to listen to it. 
you know, um, and, and try to help them not blame themselves. It's just like with our family, our family, they didn't cause our addiction, you know, uh, they can't control our addiction. They can't control our recovery and they can't cure us. You know, and sometimes the people around us, that's why we call it a family disease, is the people around us almost get addicted to trying to help us get better. Yeah. And so then when we go off to treatment and we get better and we come home and try to put our life back together, our family is still looking at us and treating us like the person that left. <laughs> yeah. You know? And yeah, so it's... It, it, they need their own program to learn how to not be addicted to us. <laughs> you know, it's funny you say that because, and I've told listeners this before, my mom was a pharmacist, right? And so we would yeah. start talking about stuff and she would treat me like I was the one who didn't know what I was talking about, but, you know, and not to belittle somebody who doesn't have a doctor, but I'm like, I had more years of schooling that was more recent than you. I think I know this better. You know, like, don't treat me like that. I think yeah, I yeah. might actually know this better. But it was exactly yeah. what you're saying of how the family cycle, you know, I got treated like the like the little kid, if you will, in that situation. Yeah. So that's interesting. Yeah. And I think one thing, Eric, that we need to point out as well is that addiction is not a moral failing. Right. You know, there, there will be th- times when in our addiction we – do things that are that go against our own personal values maybe go against uh, society's moral codes and things like that but those are just actions those aren't who we are and i think that's an important thing because if we start believing that's who we are that's where the shame comes in and with a pile of shame comes a very difficult recovery process um so uh i think it's important that people know that addiction really is a disease and that's not an excuse to say, Oh, well, I was addicted. And so I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, It's, it's more of an explanation as to why I did some of the things I did, you know, and, uh, and a definition of disease as we see it in addiction anyway, is there is a change in the structure in the function of the brain. So it's not just something that's, it's not just this weird concept of, you know, who knows what it's, what's affected. We know the, the midbrain, the amygdala, and all these uh, centers that are involved in the addiction. They are, the structure actually changes. You can look at those functional MRIs and see it, you know, and see the brain changing with people that are, you know, that are addicted and how they respond to different things around them. So, you know... Um, yeah, we do have to understand that we need to treat it as a disease because it really is a disease. It's not a moral failing. It's not bad judgment. It's, yeah, it's none of that stuff. And so you had a few things that, that I'm just going to kind of recap. And the first one you just said was like, basically, when you're pushed to the limits, you're going to do whatever it takes. And that doesn't just apply to addiction. That applies like anywhere in life. And Again, yes. this is not a same comparison, but I remember being in Boy Scouts yeah. and we were canoeing somewhere up in Canada and we had we had enough food, but you were just like starving because you're doing all this stuff and you know, you're in high school, so you used to eat all this like crap food or whatever. And I hate fish, but I'll tell you what, when we caught fish that night and we ate it, <laughs> like right out of the whatever river or bay we were at, it was like the best tasting yeah. thing in the world. I've had it since then. I'm like, why was that so good? Like, but it was because I was pushed to a limit while I was absolutely uncomfortable and I just needed that to get through. And it was like, that was my comfort, the one thing I had. And it's not I clear. I'm not trying to compare this to addiction, but it's like a very small version of what that feeling could be like of where you were pushed to. 
Well, and I like that analogy, Eric, because that's a, that's an analogy that I often use to teach my clients as to why it is they get so sucked into this. The, uh, the survival center of our brain and the pleasure center both work off dopamine. Yep. And so it is very easy for us as addicts to get in a, to get into a place where the thing that gives us the biggest dopamine burst is obviously the alcohol or the drugs. And eventually that gets wound into our survival mechanism. And that's why you see people that are addicts and alcoholics dropping a bunch of weight and drinking or using when they know it's killing them because their brain is telling them that's the thing I need to survive. Yeah. And that's also why it's so dang hard to quit. It's not just a decision. I have to turn that whole system back around and try to make it normal again. (laughs) Which is not easy because when you like when they show those like what it looks like when somebody's on like meth and just that rush of dopamine that hits, it's like uncomparable. Like, you know, like it's insane. So how are you gonna try and match that? You're not. You just gotta try and like, you know, replace it, change it, like modify it, and that's not gonna happen instantly. Well and that's the struggle a lot of addicts have when they're in early recovery is they go through this period of uh post acute withdrawal. And that's that period where your life just feels like it's really boring and nothing's going on because the your body has downregulated the dopamine as you're recovering. So now you're not even getting normal levels of dopamine anymore. You feel like crap six months, eight months, a year and a half down the road, and you're looking for that dopamine. You're just looking to feel good again or feel normal. And that's when people then go out and stumble into to trying the thing that they know doesn't work. Yeah. Because they're just so desperate to feel normal. Which is, yeah, why the, it would, they would could overdose if you're using something like opioids because your tolerance is gone. Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. And the other thing you kind of hit on there, at least you alluded to, and – we're talking about getting like, you know, recovery or getting services. In a lot of cases, if you cover it up, it's worse than admitting it or coming out. And almost, especially as a pharmacist, right, with your license, if you come out, mm-hmm. to, you know, reach out to your state association, they usually have these licensing programs that can get you in. Like you said, you still have your license because of that. And yeah. you can, if you admit it and you come forth with the problem, it's treated very differently than if you covered it up. And that is just huge, like mountainous huge. Yeah. Well, and I deal with that every day, too, with all of my, almost all of my clients are associated with uh, the court system and they're on probation or they're associated. They have an open CPS case and they're trying to keep their kids and not have their kids taken away. So everything, um, everything that they do hinges on. Uh, how successful they are in treatment. And part of the way that we measure success is, is this person able to be honest yet? And if they're still trying to, they're still popping dirty UAs and they're trying to say, I didn't use, I didn't use. Yeah. Well, they're going to suffer heavier consequences than the person that popped the dirty UA and said, yeah, I did use. Yeah. You know, and the person that gets off the easiest generally is the person that either isn't doing something wrong or admits to use before we ask for the UA because they're being honest about what's going on. And if my clients are honest about what's going on, I know what to do. I know how to treat them. If they're not being honest with me about their use, then I'm barking up the wrong tree and I may be treating them completely inappropriately because I don't know the truth about what's going on. Yeah. So, yeah, definitely if you're out there and you know somebody, some states have mandated reporting. Uh, I know my state of Ohio does. So if you know someone or you, you, 
have beyond reasonable doubt to think that they are using you have to report them. Um, I highly, highly would recommend telling them or reaching out like in any way, shape or fashion, if you can first, because if they can come out and admit it, it's going to be a lot better for them in the long run. So that's just, well, and that's, that again, touches on a very personal story of mine. When I went back to treatment the second time, uh, my boss was going to have to turn it in because there was, there was stuff missing from the pharmacy and Minnesota had just passed a law that, that you had to report that, those kind of things to the board. You couldn't just fill out your DEA form and stick it in a file cabinet somewhere. You actually had to make the board aware of it. Um, but he gave me the opportunity to go contact HPSP before he made the report. And then HPSP worked again the second time, you know, saved my license and, and all of those things. And it's... Uh, yeah, uh, the the quicker you get honest with it and don't try to hide it, the be- the better your recovery is going to go, uh, and the better your licensing situation is going to go. Yeah. So we're running a little so, short on time here, so I want to get make sure to ask you the okay. two questions that I ask everyone who comes on the podcast because I think with you it's going to be a very different uh, topic. But yeah, if you could change one thing in pharmacy that is not a law, what would it be and why? You know, I think as we're talking about this, the stigma of mental health, you know, we're just like everybody else. We have the same susceptibility to uh, depression, anxiety, uh, trauma history, uh, alcohol and drug use. And uh, for us as healthcare professionals, not to look down on the healthcare professionals that are struggling. Uh, because it will make them it easier for them to ask for help when they need it if they feel like they're not being judged by the person they stand next to all day. Yeah, that's that, that's a little tough, obviously, because it's like all those things that are ingrained. I'm losing you. I'm not catching your audio there. <laughs> Sorry. Um, that's that's yeah. tough, obviously, because there's so many things that you are ingrained in your head that you have to try and overcome your own barriers to help treat them. It's like almost like one stigma leads to another, but that's yes. super important. Yeah. Awesome. That's a good one. Uh, the other one, a little bit different here. If you could change or make or remove one law in pharmacy, what would it be and why? <laughs> okay, this one has nothing to do with addiction, but, you know, Fair. Uh, although I got out of uh, pharmacy when I did before the metrics thing came, I wish uh, if I could convince every state in the country to uh, do like some of the states like Oregon have done and say you can't use those metrics to measure pharmacist productivity and all those things, that that would be the one thing I would ask every state legislature in the country to to ban that practice, because I think it's uh, it creates situations for high stress and potential uh, potential mistakes. And it's bad patient care yeah. because it's pulling us away. It's pulling us away from our patients when we're supposed to be counseling them and talking to them about how their medications work and encouraging them to be compliant with their medications. I don't have time to do that if I have to answer the phone before the third ring. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, a lot of times they might say, Hey, it is patient care, but you know, who's going to say what's best for that patient? Because you know, you can look at it globally, right? Like we can look at statins and say, okay, diabetics need to be on them. When you drill in and say 10% have liver failure or have this, that, or had rhabdo, well, okay, that's great, but here's an exception. Here's an exception. And then when you start doing that, yeah. you start coming up with all these exceptions and individuals that you can't care for if you're trying to meet a number. And never mind, there's always ways to cheat numbers too. So you can't always cheat yeah. the patient. I mean, yeah. so 
Hey, so Sean, thanks for coming on. It's been amazing. Um, this has been for me, a really like eye opening and real conversation because I've known you since I think 2006. And so it's really interesting to hear your side of it all and your story of it. And from somebody who's been in my shoes as a pharmacist, I think that's super important. So thanks again. And listeners, I will include a lot of these links in the show notes so that if you need them, you can have them. Yeah. And that's, uh, you know, if, uh, and you were talking about, uh, uh, how to, people reach out there's also a very easy way to reach out whether you're having a mental health crisis or suicidal ideation you can text uh the word help to 741741 and that's uh, that's an easy way to get a crisis team involved and they can get you connected with local resources uh rather quickly usually but yeah text help to 741741 uh as many of you know, the phone number situation is changing, and even local calls you have to use the uh, have to use the area code now. I yeah. think that just changed this week. Uh, but the reason they're doing that is they're uh, looking at making a nine eight eight number, yeah. and that that nine eight eight is going to be your your number you dial for mental health crisis. So I I'm glad that that's coming. Yeah. And even if you don't use that yourself, it's good to have it at your pharmacy because you even if you posted it up, right? Like somebody can just see it, use it and go from there with it. And absolutely. They might not even and you can find you can find things on the Internet where the posters are already made. You just print them off and hang them up. That I'm I'm inherently lazy. So that's always a good way to put something <laughs> like that up. And I don't have to do it myself. So I like that. I hear you. <laughs> awesome. Hey, Sean, thanks again for coming on the podcast and listeners. As always, thanks for listening to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, your prescription for pharmacy and politics.